Hello, welcome to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley and we're here to talk all things leadership. Well, my guest today is Margie Hageny, who we're talking to from across the lake today, I believe. And uh, we're going to be talking about powerful questions. So welcome, Margie. Nice to see you. Thank you, David. Good to uh, and, <laughs> well, the, we've uh, kind of weaved in and out of each other for about 20 years in terms of the work that we've been doing and some linkage around some, some other consultants. And uh, Margie is a teacher and coach who works with leaders of complex systems who are looking to learn. And uh, this idea of questions came up in a conversation we were having recently. And Humanity uses the term of powerful questions as part of our leadership pyramid and the idea that powerful questions build critical thinking rather than the leader providing the answer for the person, which then trains the person to come to the leader for the answer consistently. And I know you've been doing a lot of work and research around what I call powerful questions, what other people call humble inquiry. And I thought, what a great time to have a conversation about that. Absolutely. So, Give me the, I normally try and start off with, give me the potted history, the one minute version of your biography. My story is that I, my formal schooling is education, college of education, and more specifically early childhood education, did work in Head Start programs, um, early childhood programs, um, with, a, with a focus on how do I create the conditions for learning. And then I did quite, a significant turn some years into it and went into one of the largest complex work systems on the planet, Ford Motor Company, and learned that the skills I developed and practiced with much intention um, as a teacher translated quite well to um, leaders at all levels, including executive leaders of complex systems. It's, and I've been doing that for a couple of decades now. And we're starting to get a pattern together on this podcast, I think, because a few episodes ago, I spoke to uh, Thor Flusserson, who's the global director of learning for the Kellogg Company. And he has a background in education. And we were saying how we both started in education and uh, I started in elementary as well. So um, we've got some themes going here. But uh, so this idea of questions uh, ties into your work. You've gone from teaching to forward to coaching and supporting people, creating the environments for learning. Uh, what's been your experience about this idea of how we ask questions to create a better environment, create better followers and, and better leaders ourselves? My experience, including for myself personally and my own habits, is that we ask questions with the intention of being helpful and this links to the work of um, Dr. Edgar Schein, uh, that we intend to be helpful and we intend to help move things along and people along when we ask questions, but actually quite unintentionally, we often do exactly the opposite. We, um, in our eagerness to be helpful, what we're actually doing is feeding the answer, which doesn't help at all in creating competent, confident thinkers or leaders um, at any level. So that intent to be helped, I want to help you out. And so the shortest route to me helping you out is to tell you the answer to the question that you've got, 
or the problem that you have rather than helping you get to that result on your own. Right. And that does link back, at least from my own experience, to um, even work in schools. If I give my students or even at home, if I am intending to be helpful to my children with their schooling, and maybe now in the pandemic more than ever, a lot of people find themselves in that situation. I am not helping my student build muscle and critical thinking skills for themselves when I am feeding answers in the way I ask questions. Right. And so the byproduct is if, if I feed you the answer, I've just trained you to come to me for the answers. Yes. Whereas uh, if, if we ask what I call powerful questions, what I'm doing is training you to think about a bunch of things before you come to me. So I'm not saying you shouldn't come to me, but you know that if you come to me, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. You start to think about those questions previously. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you mentioned Edgar Schein. Help, help me understand a little bit about his work, because I know you've been very familiar with that. Yes, I um, actually became familiar with his work when I was working at Ford. And Ford had the budget capacity to reach out to very well-regarded thought leaders um, across the planet. And I, um, because of his work in MIT and the work with systems thinking with Peter Senge, I became familiar with his work and I studied it from afar. And then in the last 10 years or so, he's now Professor Emeritus. He is well into his 90s and still very, very active. In partnership with his son, Peter, they have re republished some of his most um, pragmatic teachings, I would say, um, in the form of some very accessible, easy to read books, one of the first of which was named Helping. So I um, have dug into Edgar's work further and in the last couple of years have also had the privilege of having dinner with him a few times. And um, it's given me, um, you know, I had a lot of underpinning, theoretical underpinning when I was in the College of Education and Edgar's work aligns with and supports that with the notion of the complex systems work as well. So this is what he calls humble inquiry. Yes. And yeah. how would you frame humble inquiry for people who never come across this work? Humble inquiry is the notion that um, I show respect, I show support for people by hearing where their thinking is at and suspending my own assumptions about what it is that someone might need from me in order to further their thinking and their progress. And specifically in the way we offer questions that aren't my thinking is higher level than your thinking. Right. So it's, it's suspending all the things that are going on in my head for a minute and asking a question that I probably don't know the answer to, to help you do the thinking that you need to be doing. Right. And even if I do have thoughts about it, um, holding back and allowing the thinking of the person I'm there in service to, to come forth and supporting them with their own thinking. Right. 
So, so we have a couple of rules for our powerful questions. One of them is a powerful question should not be able to be answered yes or no. So it should be an open-ended question. And then the second rule is a powerful question is not advice disguised as a question, which gets to what you're telling people to unlock from, isn't it? That uh, saying, have you thought about this can come across as a question, but it's really advice disguised as a question. Uh, someone who's been a, a frequent contributor to this podcast, Judy Brown, adds uh, they're non-judgmental to that when she's talking about powerful questions, that they, they shouldn't have judgment to them. And I, I love what, uh, what you're adding to this is this whole sense of uh, taking away my thinking at this stage and trying to work out the best question that's really helping you. Yeah, and I... Um... I have another teacher, John Shook, who spent many long years in um, Toyota. And um, there's a, a phrase used there that goes along the lines of, I didn't know a question you needed until I heard where your thinking is at. And again, we, we all have deep, deep, deep neural pathways right. for offering our thinking question mark Mm -hmm. is not at all the same of as opening asking an open-ended question right. that creates the condition for another person to do their own thinking. And I love that framing of it, that uh, that's idea of I didn't know what question you needed until mm -hmm. I understood really where you were coming from. Uh, right. and, and most leaders don't tend to operate that way. The leaders I work with are immediately wanting to be, like you said, helpful with the answer as opposed to rec recognizing that their job is to ask that powerful question. Right. And in a lot of industries or companies or organizations, um, people are viewed higher value for what they may know. Um, but what if we were to turn it on its end and we were had the possibility of creating an, just an organization filled with critical thinkers who learn how to support each other and do their best thinking together versus an individual's heroic idea. Which you know, kind of culturally in the States here, I think we've, we've drifted from this to one of you learn this, you pass the test. We're not, uh, not many schools seem to be developing critical thinking. And so then when you get into work, managers are saying, my people aren't thinking. Why aren't they thinking about the things I'm thinking about? And half the time it's because they're not creating that environment by asking the right questions uh, exactly. and retraining people to ask the questions in the first place. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> so, so, so you mentioned one book of, of uh, Shines um, and you said they're accessible and really driven towards helping people operate this way. Is, which other ones would you recommend? Um, there actually is one that he's written that was a follow-up. Um, it completely aligns with called humble inquiry that digs into more about the thinking behind that. Um, you know, I, um, I sometimes use the phrase humble inquiry with people when they are open to hearing it that way. And sometimes like you, the phrase, a powerful question may be the better labeling for it. Right. And, um, but the idea is that, you know, we, um, it's not that you, what you're looking for is balance. There are times when a question is important that a question be more directive. Um, 
but it's about it's a, it's about balance. My own practice when I set practice fields for people, I've been asked to help get better at asking humble inquiry questions or what you are referring to as powerful questions. I don't have research to support this. I have my own note taking, but more often than not, until we become more attuned to our habits, 90% of the time, the questions that come out of our mouth are my idea question mark versus an open-ended powerful question. And it's humbling for people when they start to get some of that evidence for themselves. Some of them feel badly about themselves when they realize that. And it also, my own observation is that when people put some direct intention to shifting that habit in themselves, they can be strikingly better, strikingly better in two to three weeks. When they make the choice that this is something, this is a habit that I need to start to diminish and bring a new habit into existence. And you're not saying giving direction and advice is a, a wrong thing. You're just saying, let's minimize the amount of direction and advice we give to a tiny amount. Because if you're smart, you should be able to turn that into a powerful question that gets the individual to get to that place on their own or even a better place than our direction and advice might have been. <laughs> But I get, and I get the signal from the learner of when that's needed. Right. When I see someone stuck after having received questions that should help them do some better thinking for themselves, mm -hmm. it's disrespectful to my way of thinking to let them stay stuck on that. They may need a little bit of mini teach or a little bit of um, helping recall a time either individually or collectively that looked similar to just give them a bit of a, a, um, a, a nudge to get unstuck. And I, I even like your nudge was a question because yeah. if somebody's yeah. stuck, your question is when's a time when you've experienced something like this before, or when's a time when you overcame this before that nudge is to get them thinking a little differently to the more lateral way that they probably are. But that nudge can be a question in itself that helps unlock the, the field for the participant. Yeah, and I, um, along a similar vein, I think sometimes when people are with their leader, they create anxiety in themselves about, I have to get it right, I have to nail this. And uh, a, a question that I've offered to leaders that they found helpful going forward is, again, something I learned in the College of Education, to offer something along the line of what's one thought you have about this, which takes away to the need to be correct, um, to score points with the boss. It's just what's your beginning thinking about this? Right. Can unlock people's possibilities. I, and that's a, a, the very opening end to get their thinking, is it? Because you even go to the other end where you can say, if there was zero risk involved, what would you do? Exactly. Uh, and that's exactly. at the other end where it says, well, I'd just do this. Okay, so what's stopping you from doing that? So right. which then is a series of questions. Right. And, and like you, the more I find I ask a good question, the less work I have to do. And the more you see the person come alive as they explore it themselves. And it's this aliveness that blends between frustration because they're not quite sure 
and then the opening up of the channels that says, ah, I think I've got it. And, and that, in my mind, is the beauty of they walk away saying, I got it, yeah. as opposed to you told me. Exactly. Exactly. And I think you and I have talked about this before, David, where there are also times when people think that a powerful question has to be complicated or it's very long. Um, many people have found for themselves that a really powerful question is actually quite short. Um, again, I've started to pay attention to the patterns in this and uh, many, many powerful, helpful questions are no more than seven to eight words long. How, how did you go about that? When did it first break down? What else are you noticing? Say more about that. They are not overly engineered questions. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of setting the table for what the thinking that comes next from the person who might be wrestling with something. I was just counting because one of my favorites is help me understand that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hits your target. So one of the other things that you shared in a previous conversation is it's not just about asking the question. Uh, you, the term you use is creating the environment for the, the learning to be happening, the thinking to be happening. When I ask the question, the temptation is to not leave very, very big space. And you were sharing some research that suggests that that's not smart. Yes. Um... I would say my experience and many people not along in agreement when I say this is we often find ourselves in work meetings in particular when someone says, any questions? No? Okay, let's move on. Boom, 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 boom. And if I had a question or I had a moment to think about a question, that certainly didn't create the condition for me to think about it. And there's some um, beginning research that is showing that when we create the pause, the, the moments of silence in between, it, especially for more introverted thinkers, I, um, you and many people on the planet know I am a chatty extrovert and I am happy to fill the airtime. And I have to, with great intention, make myself stop and I actually am silently counting in my head to 10. And 10 seconds can seem interminably long. It's not that long. And it, um, for many, many people who we might not otherwise hear from, it gives them the condition they need to think about what they heard, formulate a question or formulate a thought and offer it, and it is often in se seconds seven, eight, nine, that someone will offer something that might not otherwise have been heard. I also, um, you mentioned Judy Brown. Um, I had the great privilege of meeting her, and she was an outside coach for me when I worked at Ford. And Judy, who is also aware I was a chatty expert, extrovert one time, put her hand on my shoulder and said, you know, Margie, getting ready to talk is not the same thing as listening. So this habit, if you just choose for yourself to start counting to 10, it increases the likelihood that you will be listening as well instead of getting ready to talk. 
So it serves many purposes. Uh, and I like that combination of one being, let me create the space so that I switch off from my question to my listening mode. But then also the idea and, and the research you were sharing of that we normally give people around three or four seconds and their best thinking happens after that. And that's when you give people the time and the place to really get to, to grips with the question and then be able to respond to it. So in our normal practice, we're asking a question and as powerful as it might be, if we're only giving them three seconds, we're not giving people time to even think about it before we're on to the next question. And so we're not creating that environment. We're just blasting them, bombarding them with questions as opposed to creating that space. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I emphasize this a lot with leaders. That habit that many of us have does not come from the place of bad intent. It comes from the intention, again, of trying to be helpful and move things along. And we um, unintentionally sabotage that with some of the habits we've had for a long, long time. So I've got to care enough to shut up, <laughs> which is... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that, does not, that does not come easily. No, not to some of us. Anyway. <laughs> so, so I love that. And, um, you know, we had Judy on a few uh, episodes back and she was sharing her poem, Fire, which uh, talks about the spaces between the logs and the power of the spaces between the logs. And I love the contrast between that and what we're talking about here, which is that short, powerful question and then leave the space because it's the space where, that needs to breathe and it's the oxygen that comes from that that, that builds the fire. So right. I, I love the, the synthesis between those, those two things. Or the space between the notes is yeah. what gives the, the power and the beauty to the notes in music. Or some would say with my music, just the space is what is the beauty. <laughs> you just stop the notes, just leave us with the space. <laughs> That's what I hear all the time. So the other thing that we, we talked about recently that I found interesting as well, that uh, I was sharing that I uh, take notes when I'm facilitating on my computer and I create mind maps. And um, you were sharing the, the research again in the practice of taking handwritten notes and the learning that comes with that. So yes. tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, again, from the College of Education, I had it pounded into me to um, record. It was decades ago, so it was record in writing um, just what I was seeing, not in putting any judgment or opinion into it, capture the evidence of what is going on. So I have deep habit for doing that. And I have held on to that habit for many decades, even when using a keyboard um, is handier and omnipresent. And I've, I've wondered for myself why that was the case. And I have always felt for myself that the kinesthetics of writing notes by hand somehow helped me retain what I was hearing better. And there is research that is showing that. Um, there's many studies underway, one of which I'm most familiar with is underway at Stanford, where they are asking um, students, I believe it is in an intro science 101 course, where they are asking students to put away their, their notepads their, or their keyboards and take any notes by hand First of all, you have to see if people can even still people write. Can write. <laughs> you know? so there's, there's a first problem to be considered. 
But there's something, there's, there actually is something, research is showing, that the um, multimodality of hearing, seeing, and kinesthetically write, writing creates different neural pathways for learning in our bodies than does just using a keyboard. Retention is higher. Um, deeper learning occurs. So I, um, so I do that with the people that I coach and I give them, I, everything I do is completely transparent and I just take a photo or give them the copy of what I've written and they have evidence for themselves about what actually was said, what actually happened versus some of the um, assumptions we may have of how we showed up in a particular meeting or a particular moment. Right. I think, it, don't quote me, I was saying it's Dante's quote is, uh, he listens well who takes notes. And uh -huh. so we connect the, the listening with the powerful questions to the, let me make some notes. And uh, I have a plant manager, a CEO now, who whenever he's in a plant, always insists that everybody has a little notebook because if something happens, how will they record it? Because 10 things could happen in the plant that yeah. need taken care of and you've forgotten nine of them by the time you get back. And Perfect. so everybody should have a little notebook in their pocket somewhere so that they can write it down. And it's, again, it's kind of getting people into that, that habit again of writing. So, so you've shared, Hey, we can ask powerful questions and the, the humble inquiry, which is about really caring for the other person because I'm not giving them the answer. I'm helping create the environment for them to learn and develop their critical thinking pathways themselves. That then we need to create the space to listen and give them at least the 10 seconds so that they can do their best thinking. And then make sure we're taking some handwritten notes because that's gonna help us capture what it is, the evidence behind things that will probably prepare us to ask a better question either next time or as a follow-up. Yeah, it's, uh, for me, it's um, kind of a reinforcing loop around this. And what matters about it is making the decision to practice. We will be wobbly, we will be frustrated, and little by little by little, it is possible to get some evidence for yourself. And the biggest evidence may be how people you lead respond to you. And you realize there's more thinking going on about the, by the people you lead and fewer um, occurrences of reaching out for you to give the direction. Margie Hageny, teacher, coach, and asker of powerful questions. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, David. And thank you for sharing. You've been listening to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley. And we're brought to you by the book, What Great Teams Do Great, available now at all good bookstores. Thanks to Brian Spencer and Finkel for the music. Please share any feedback and suggestions. I'm available through humanity.com. And uh, go to iTunes, like, subscribe, and leave us a review so that other people can find us. In the meantime, until next time we meet, stay healthy.